Well, I want to refer you to the uh, notes that we have. And um, I was consoled <clears throat> this week in uh, producing again 13 pages of notes to notice that Matthew likes scribes. And he um, commends those who are scribes, and a scribe is a student of the Bible. And we'll say more about that a little bit later on. But um, I just feel as though 15, 20 minutes, whatever it is that is given to a preacher on Sunday is um, barely enough to uh, feed a congregation. And I really commend to you uh, the notes. There's nothing in there that comes particularly from me. Most of it comes from other authorities and where it does come from me. Um, I uh, own up to it. Our texts this afternoon uh, finish off the series of parables which Jesus began to give in Matthew chapter 13. If you remember our context in Matthew, Matthew chapter 13 is the third of five Moses-like speeches which Jesus gives. And chapter 13 is right at the middle. And so the parables of Jesus are important, and they're crucial for understanding the nature of the Christian life. Uh, they can often be considered to be uh, children's stories, stories made simple, but as um, Matthew will elucidate a little bit further on, um, the parables are uh, both simple and straightforward in a way, and yet they have depths uh, that cannot be reached. The great early scholar Jerome who was a, uh, a Bible scholar and a translator, uh, described the parables, and I believe also the other teachings of Jesus, as being shallow enough for a baby not to drown in, but deep enough so that a scripture scholar could spend his or her entire life plumbing their depths and never touch the bottom. And so um, there's lots, lots here. And we're only going to touch on some of it, uh, but um, it can be grouped together um, under uh, four headings, and I've tried to find similar words to guide us as we go through the passage today. And if you're looking for where we are or will be in the notes, uh, page, pages uh, one and two contain the translation, uh, two and three have footnotes, and then pages four to 13 um, have notes of various kinds, um, the odd one of which I will refer to, but which I'm happy to leave largely for your own um, reference. So our sermon today is about what is the kingdom like? What is the nature of the kingdom of God? And I want to suggest that our passages can be grouped under four headings. The kingdom grows on you. This is what we find in the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. The parables, the kingdom glows on you. Uh, as in the hidden treasure, which would have jewels that would sparkle, as in, and as in the pearl, which is found that has extraordinary value. The kingdom grows on you. The kingdom glows on you. Thirdly, the kingdom closes in on you at the end. And that's the parable of the net in verses 47 to 50, which in many ways is like the parable of the wheat and the tares that we looked at a few weeks ago. There's a concern um, about the fact that evil people are cohabiting with the righteous, and Jesus is saying, don't let that bother you, because in the end, there will come a dreadful day 
when those who do not know uh, and follow the teachings of Jesus and are otherwise wicked will be removed and cast into a fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Scary stuff, but there it is. And then finally, the kingdom tows on you, T-O-W-S. And that's a way of referring to the fact that Jesus and Matthew describe the kingdom as being something that is given to people who are called scribes, who then perpetuate the message of the kingdom to others. They are uh, faithful devotees of Jesus who are students of the Bible. And here Matthew is thinking particularly of himself, I believe, and along with many others, uh, but it also refers to disciples in general. So let's go back and start at the beginning. Verses 31 to 33. And uh, there's a translation on page one that um, elucidates some things in a slightly different way. Another parable, he set before them. This is the word that was used, as we recalled previously, of Moses setting before the people of Israel the law. It's laying it down, as it, as it were. Another parable he laid down before them. The kingdom of the heavens is comparable to a mustard seed, which a man takes and sows in his field. Though it is smaller than all other seeds, yet when it is full grown, it is larger than all the other garden plants and even becomes a tree, such that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Grows on you parable number one, grows on you parable number two, that of the leaven, one verse, verses verse, or sorry, two verses, or one verse, verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heavens is compared to leaven, which a woman took and hid and hid in three measures of flour until it was entirely raised. Well, I think the idea here is quite obvious that the mustard seed and the leaven are uh, small, relatively inconsequential, ordinary things, and yet they have a seminal capacity. There's an organic capacity within them that makes them grow huge to the point where you're just astounded, and you end up saying, how could anything that big and that nourishing and hospitable have come from such modest origins. And the background, of course, is Jesus thinking about the nature of his own ministry. We've seen time and again that Jesus, who is the son of David and who's expected to become the king, is leading a very different life than what you might expect of someone who was destined to be a superstar. He's away in a remote area, telling stories, helping people, um, raising the dead, doing miraculous things, which are really astounding, but largely out of the limelight. If you want to be where the action is and you want to stake your claim, Jesus, you should be in Jerusalem. Jesus is nowhere near Jerusalem at this point and will go to Jerusalem only to meet a very different end than anyone expects of the king of Israel. So this was a source of encouragement to people in Jesus's day. And actually, it's kind of interesting to think of the fact, thanks, Roger, it's kind of interesting to think of the fact that when Jesus told these parables, historically, the kingdom was still pretty mustard seed-like. Um, Matthew, neither Matthew nor Jesus had any idea that the kingdom would spread to the Roman Empire, that it would become a, a global religion. Uh, Jesus had that idea, but only in a prophetic sense. He hadn't seen it, he predicted it, and we can look back on it and say, uh, yes, he was right. The parable of the leaven says the same thing. It says that a fistful of leaven uh, was put in three measures of flour. That's about 40 liters of flour 
uh, and that leaven did its thing and the flour raised into bread. And so we're talking again about a massive amount. This was enough bread to feed several hundred people. And the mustard seed grows into a plant that can be about 10 feet tall. And um, birds don't actually nest in it, but Jesus is pushing the limits and imagining birds nesting in it. The translation might also be birds perch in its branches. The point is, is it's bigger than you'd ever imagine. And in both cases, the kingdom gets to be large, not just large for its own sake, but it gets to be hospitable. The birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The birds of the air are likely in context, the Gentiles of the nations. And if you're not a Jewish follower of Jesus, which most of you aren't, um, I presume that would include you. You are a bird nesting right this afternoon in one of the branches of a very large kingdom that once started with a Jewish carpenter in the hills of Galilee telling stories and performing miracles. The same with the parable of the leaven. My friends, the kingdom has a way of growing, <laughs> not just globally, but it has a way of growing on you. Uh, and a mature Christian just hates the thought of um, being away from the church or being away from his or her Bible, being away from his or her Bible study, being away from uh, meeting with other Christians and enjoying the kind of fellowship that you can have, not just with the people you know, your buddies here at the university or somewhere else, but you could get dropped into a church in any country of the world. And if you go to a church where people are really kingdom people, you will be welcomed like a brother or a sister. The kingdom grows on you. Secondly, the kingdom glows on you. Verses 44 to 45. Here we have the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of extraordinary value. The kingdom of heavens is comparable to a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found, then covered up, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heavens is comparable to a traveling merchant looking for fine pearls and who, on finding a pearl of extraordinarily high value, went and sold everything of which he was in possession and bought it. Jesus has upped the ante a little bit here. Again, you have two things are hidden, but there is a more than implicit requirement or expectation on the part of the person who makes this discovery of the kingdom. I found it in a place that I never expected. And guess what? It's so joy-filled and so valuable that I'm going to drop everything and run and do what I need in order to buy it. And this is Jesus's way of saying that a follower of Jesus, once he or she discovers the kingdom, is inevitably, joyfully, delightfully all in. You, in fact, uh, do what Matthew did, what a scribe does, leave your father, your mother, maybe your job, and you do whatever it takes to possess that valuable treasure. It isn't very surprising when you think about what you're being offered. The famous missionary Jim Elliott, who was martyred in his 30s, uh, became famous, I think, for a saying that he had because it came true in his own life. He said, he is no, no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, namely your life, to gain what you cannot lose, eternal life. And so the kingdom has a way of growing on you, and the kingdom has a way of glowing on you. As I was preparing the sermon, I thought um, 
that here we are talking about something that is tiny, uh, but yet significant. Um, and yet the underlying, uh, the underlying um, assumption behind my preaching is that this really does have an effect on people. So at this point, we're going to take a little break, and we're going to do something a bit different. And I have asked uh, two people, Marion Karashuk and my friend James Kraskovich, just to come and share for a few minutes uh, their experience of having discovered this thing that was hidden, but which is now very important in their lives. So Marion first, and then James second, please. Thanks, Glenn. So Matthew 13, 44 uh, says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In the parable of the hidden treasure, the man uh, finds the treasure by accident. Um, perhaps he had walked through that field hundreds of times without finding the treasure buried in it, but one day he finds it and immediately realizes it's worth selling everything else in order to possess it. This is my favorite parable of, of Jesus um, because it reminds me of my own conversion story when I was uh, 35 years old. I grew up a cultural Catholic. I went to Catholic school and, and church up to the end of high school. I drifted away from church and university. And then uh, when I met my husband, Gary, um, we were both lapsed Catholics. We came back to attending church to keep uh, our promise to the Catholic priest who agreed to marry us. Um, and when we were married in 1992, we lived in Keswick, which is quite a bit north of Toronto, and attended a Catholic church there. But when we moved uh, to Toronto, to the area where we still live today, uh, we ended up attending the Anglican church down the street um, because our daughter Alexis went to daycare in the basement of that church. But whether attending a Catholic church or an Anglican church I wasn't really sure what I believed about the Christian faith. Um, and I, I didn't think it was particularly urgent to sort it out. Uh, life was busy. Gary was uh, working as a computer programmer for IBM. And I was working as an engineer for a robotics company. And Alexis was in daycare. And you know it just took a lot to keep things going with uh, work and life and family. Now, at the Anglican church that we attended, um, the gospel was not really clearly preached. But looking back, God was still at, at work uh, preparing me. He was speaking through the, the liturgy, uh, through Holy Communion, through his word, and through the, the stories told by our, our priest who had served in Africa. Also, in my workplace, um, there were some Christians who made a really favorable impression on me. I, I didn't really get what they were about, but I, I thought 
there was something remarkable about them. Then in 1999, I was pregnant uh, with our son, Zachary. A couple of weeks before the due date, I um, went on maternity leave. And that Sunday at church, our priest announced that there was an alpha course happening at a neighboring uh, church. Um, it sounded like some kind of Sunday school for grownups. Um, it was on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. The priest was planning to attend to check it out, and he asked if there was anyone willing to go with him. Um, he set the bar really low. He, he said, you don't need to know anything about the Bible, and if you don't like it, uh, you don't have to continue. I had never before in my life had spare time on a Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. <laughs> um, but there I was, waiting to have a baby with nothing on my schedule. Um, I'd never heard of Alpha. I didn't really know what it was, and it didn't sound especially interesting to me. Um, but I told the priest I was willing to come along with him. Um, I said I wouldn't be able to stay uh, for, for very many weeks because I was about to have a baby. <laughs> that Tuesday morning was September the 14th, 1999. And I heard and understood the gospel for the first time in my life. And I couldn't believe that Christianity had been under my nose basically all my life. And I had never understood what it was really about and why it was so important. Um, Zach was born 11 days later, but I never missed a single session. I went to Alpha with a three-day-old baby. And I just kept going week after week to the end of the course. And during those weeks, I, I got a hold of a, a, a Bible, um, dusted it off, <laughs> and started reading it for myself. With a newborn baby, I, I was waking up in the middle of the night every night to nurse, so I would read the Bible. What followed was, uh, I think, analogous to selling everything to buy the field um, in which I had accidentally found this treasure. I didn't return to my old job, uh, not because I didn't like working as an engineer, um, but rather because I had been ignoring God most of my life, and I just wanted to make up for lost time. I jumped into volunteering in the community, mostly at the schools that my children attended at. Um, and then I got involved in all kinds of uh, different lay ministries. Later, I would train as a preacher and uh, get involved in planting Christ the King uh, Church, uh, go to seminary and eventually be ordained as a deacon. So Zach is now 23 years old. In fact, today, is his birthday. I'm kind of hoping he's watching on Zoom. Um, all these years, I have never ceased to marvel at God's grace uh, to me. I wasn't seeking, but in his goodness and sovereignty, he caused me to stumble upon the truth of the gospel, the treasure for which it is worth giving up everything else to possess it. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
Amen. Hello, everyone. I'm Glenn's friend, James. I'm thankful for the opportunity to uh, share my testimony with you. Some 17 years ago, I was in a very different place in life. I was going through grade 12 for the third time. I was very depressed, not studying, selling drugs, suicidal, and in a very bad place in life. It was in that context that a girl in my calculus class invited me to go to a prayer meeting. And I thought she was cute, so I went to the prayer meeting with no good motives and no desire to know God. Well, you see, I was forgot to mention this. I grew up in a Marxist atheist household. So in my mind, uh, religion was a nice fairy tale you tell to weak-minded people so they can get a grip on the difficulties of life. So that's the presupposition I had walking into that prayer meeting. Uh, I believe it was either six or eight people. This was during uh, lunchtime at school. Uh, I think it was six or eight of us who sat in a circle and everyone started taking turns to pray. I could tell eventually it was going to get to me. And I didn't think at all about what I would say. I was too busy scorning and mocking everyone in my head as they prayed asking for uh, help with their studies or for scholarships. In my mind, these are wishes to a fairy in the sky. And I, I thought it was very funny. Uh, so without giving any thought to anything I would say, uh, my turn came. And three things happened simultaneously when it became my turn. So I was imitating everyone else, my eyes were closed. Uh, although my eyes were closed, I suddenly saw what looked like the image of a white light with three figures within it watching me. I had a sudden understanding that all the suffering I'd gone through in life was given to me by God to teach me to have compassion on people who suffer. And I felt a joy that made all previous happiness feel dirty by comparison. So I prayed, thanking God for suffering, suffering that teaches us lessons. And when I finished my prayer, the, the feeling faded, the, the vision faded, I retained that knowledge and then just got up and left. But that completely changed my perspective. My, the hatred that made me deny the existence of God was gone. And I had this intense desire to seek after the true joy, the joy that is pure. So I went and got a Bible, uh, read through half the Old Testament, skipped to the new because it was some hard stuff in there. Uh, saw that Jesus died for evil people. I thought, well, that's me. I'm an evil person. I definitely deserve to go to hell. And it was a, just a natural step at that point to turn to Christ and uh, look to him for salvation and live my life for him because he is the source of joy and nothing else in this world truly satisfies. And I haven't done so perfectly since then, but I've been striving to do so uh, from that day till now. And that's the story of how the Lord saved me. Thank you, um, both Marion and James, very much. <clears throat> really underscores though the stuff we're talking about is real, right? I mean, uh, 
these people don't look like they're the kind of people who would make this thing up, right? So this is, these are just two examples of uh, what God does um, through his kingdom in ways that are very subtle and small, uh, unnoticeable in the big scene of things, but with enormous implications. As I was thinking about the kingdom growing on you, I thought, how likely is it that there's something that you could barely even see in one local place would have an effect on the whole world for years? Maybe something that would start in Wuhan, for example. I mean, you never even heard of Wuhan, right? And this thing that still has, that for years has had us uh, wearing masks and everything else is something that we can't see, but yet it's, 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 a, its effect is pervasive. That, my friends, is what the kingdom is like. It grows on you and it grows in the world. And if you haven't had that experience of discovering that mustard seed, I really would encourage you to do that and talk to somebody who's had the kind of experience that Marion and James have been describing. It's one of joy, and it continues to be one of joy. Uh, last night on the way home from the college, I went to Pizza Nova to get a slice, and I met this uh, guy in the lineup. There wasn't a very big lineup at one in the morning. Um, and uh, I said hello, and he said, hi. And I, I smiled at him and, uh, and ordered my slice. And he said, you look different. You're wearing very nice clothes. And I looked and I, I was not wearing nice clothes at all. And I said, no, I don't think so. And he said, well, I don't know. You look really happy. And uh, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm, I'm a retired professor and I just finished uh, working on a sermon and, and I'm on my way home. And he said, you look really happy. And then he just left. And I sort of thought, like, I have a furrow in my brow. I scowl a lot. But it's, it's, uh, it's just something that sometimes people can notice. And it's the nature of the kingdom of God which brings joy and which is worth selling everything to acquire. But notice Jesus here does say twice, you need to acquire it. And it's not something you can buy, but it is something that once it gets hold of you, it by nature will just kind of take every aspect of your life. And it's not that, uh, you know, God is some kind of a hoarder, but it's just that this is so valuable and so important. Uh, and you just recognize this is the one thing in life that has eternal value. It's not materialism. It's not whatever else. It's Jesus filling that void in your life that only Jesus can. And it's the real deal and it lasts. It doesn't capture headlines, but it changes lives one by one on an ongoing basis. Let me move quickly to it closes on you. It seems to have been an issue in Jesus's day that there were a lot of people who weren't paying much attention. Uh, and that was a distraction to people. And I think that the lesson uh, of 47 to 50, among others, is that there is one day when the kingdom will catch up on you. And you want to be on the right side of the deal because there will come a day when right will be separated from wrong. And that time will come. And when it comes, it will be too late. David Hume was a very famous uh, Scottish philosopher and was an atheist. And uh, maybe you have read his dialogue on human understanding. Um, Hume's um, uh, views are really engaging and interesting, and he, he tied the world up in a knot that Immanuel Kant 
uh, untied uh, through his own unique philosophies. But anyway, there was a lot of interest in David Hume when he came to die. He was, he was an outspoken atheist. And people by the dozens, if not the hundreds, came to his bedside when he was dying to see whether he would repent and ask forgiveness. They just sort of thought, David, the clock is ticking here. And we're going to watch it go out. And we hope that you will commit your life to God. And it was just sort of like interest, you know? So is, is David going to sort of admit that he needs God? And I'm sorry to say that David Hume, from what everybody can tell, uh, did not do that thing. We had a neighbor near the cottage do the same thing, full of four-letter words. My brother went to visit him on his deathbed and said, uh, I'll call him Bob. Bob, would you like me to pray? <laughs> and I mean, if you'd asked him to pray at any other point in his life, he would have just said, well, he would have used a, a four-letter word that begins with F, uh, followed by U, and that would be, that would be it. But, 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 but Bob was interested now because the end had come, and there comes a time. So Matthew reminds us again and concludes, in fact, with the parable of the net. And it's the same as the wheat and the tares in its message, so it's important. You know, preachers are often... Uh, scorn for scaring people into the kingdom and talking about doom and gloom and hellfire and everything else and damnation. Um, but I was reminded by one mainline denominational commentator who said, you know, it's there. It's not popular, but it's there. And the church and others do well to take heed. So it will be in the consummation of the ages and the age. The angels will come forward and separate the evil from among the righteous, and they will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The kingdom grows on you. The kingdom glows on you. The kingdom closes in on you, whether you like it or not, one day. And then finally, the kingdom toes on you. I don't think I ever really truly understood Matthew 13, 51 to 53. But in going through the Gospel of Matthew, I noted many times that people highlight it as a climax of the book. I thought, what is this climax? Well, Jesus says in verses 51 to 53, let's read it first. Have you understood all these things? They said yes to him. Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, on account of this, Every scribe who has been discipled in the truths of the kingdom of the heavens is akin to a household master who brings forth out of his treasure things both new and old. Okay, Jesus. I thought scribes were bad. Well, we start with two points of understanding. One is that only the Pharisaic scribes were bad. Actually, scribes are a good thing if they're on, uh, if they're on the right side of, of understanding scriptures. Ezra was a scribe. Moses was understood in Judaism to be the scribe par excellence. And here, Matthew is almost undoubtedly alluding to himself. Uh, as in Mark, you know, with the, with the guy who ran away naked, which everybody says, oh, that was probably John Mark. And uh, John, the beloved disciple. Here, Matthew alludes to himself. A scribe may be defined as somebody who is um, a fastidious student of the Bible and follower of Jesus and his teachings, and who is so committed to understanding the word that in Matthew's case, 
he was actually divinely inspired to write what he wrote. And so in understanding the nature of the scribe, in Matthew's case, we get a window on the nature of biblical inspiration. And if you have uh, time and interest uh, to turn later uh, to pages um, 11 and 12, uh, you will see that there are cases where Matthew, under the inspiration of the, of the, of the Holy Spirit, um, took what he received from Mark, and then he would add something. And he knew and understood Jesus because he had been a student of Jesus and had schooled with him and had probably memorized all of the teachings of Jesus. That's what a scribe does. And he, 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 he had a sense that verse 43 was appropriate. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So there are two ways in which we can understand a scribe. What I call a big S scribe, that is somebody like Matthew who writes scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then there are small S scribes who are students of the Bible like you and me. And here Jesus commends them. And says, every scribe who's been discipled in the truths of the kingdom of heaven is akin to um, somebody who owns a house. And when people come, uh, he brings stuff out of the closet. You know, here's, here's a garment for you. And he, he shares things that are old and things that are new um, with that person and offers hospitality to them. The old and the new in the first instance are probably the Old Testament and the new are the teaching of the gospel. But in Matthew's unique case, those new things can be what scholars will sometimes call a Matthean redaction, uh, where Matthew, under the inspiration of the Spirit, will take two miracle stories and juxtapose them and put just a little bit of a different twist on it. This is not somebody who's being innovative for its own sake, but it's somebody who understands the tradition and who was divinely authorized to do this and is assured to have done so uh, under the inspiration of the, the Holy Spirit. So um, I'm, gonna, I'm going, to, um, going to close because our time has, uh, has gone, but I just do want to draw your attention to uh, what is on the last few pages, especially if you're wondering about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There's a summary about what discipleship means in the Gospel of Matthew and what it also means to be a scribe. And um, Matthew uh, was a scribe par excellence, and he's kind of looking at himself in the mirror here, but he's also holding up a reflection and saying, um, if you have an interest in becoming a student of the Bible, going into the ministry maybe, studying the Bible in more depth, this is a really good thing to do. And you can be a blessing uh, as somebody who interprets the Bible for the benefit of others. But it's not an elite class. It's something that uh, we're all called to do. G uh, Matthew has Jesus close the gospel of course, by saying, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And lo, I am with you always. So friends, the kingdom grows on you. The kingdom glows on you. The kingdom will close on you. And the kingdom presents the option of towing on you. In other words, you can kind of become part of the force by which people come to understand the nature of the kingdom. Let's close in prayer. Gracious God, thank you for your reality. Thank you for the message of the kingdom of heaven and for the way in which you continue to touch people's lives and change them. We need that so much in our personal lives and at a global level.
And we pray that your spirit would continue to speak and minister to us through your word that would bring us to a knowledge of Jesus and to share that wonderful, joyful, hidden treasure knowledge with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.